Good morning, Village Bible Church. My name is Nicholas Gerken. Um, I've been interning here at Village Bible Church uh, for a few years now. You, you'll usually see me in the summer. Um, that's when I'm mostly around. I'm hanging out with the youth. I'm working with Pastor Tim and all the other the campus pastors. Um, but this morning, I've been given the opportunity, the blessing, uh, to preach about our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ. And so if you would, uh, could you pray with me as we begin our time studying the Word? Father God, we cannot thank you enough for sending your Son. Father, something that is completely undeserved, um, you gave to us freely. And so, Father, we ask that we would be grateful, that we would not forget this, that, Father, would be on the forefront of our mind as we go through our life. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning and we study um, the beauty of your Son, that, Father, you would open up our eyes to see what you want us to see. You'd open up our hearts to understand and to apply to our lives the things that you would want to apply. So we ask that the Holy Spirit that indwells us um, would reveal these things to us. Father, we ask all these things in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we have just finished uh, a Christmas season. We were just finishing the Advent series. And Christmas is that wonderful time of year where we commemorate, we remember that Jesus was, um, that Jesus came. And he came as an infant, a, a little baby boy. And when we finish the Christmas season, after we put away the little nativity sets with the little baby Jesuses, and we, you know, clap after a Christmas pageant, as we're finishing it up, we make this really odd transition. We go from talking about Jesus as a, as a little baby boy to suddenly 30 years old um, in his ministry. Uh, it doesn't help. Uh, the Gospels really don't give us a, a good in-between time. It's baby Jesus, and then there's this little story about Jesus at the temple as a boy, and we'll talk about that today. Um, and then just skips right to Jesus at 30 years old. He, he comes down to the river, and John the Baptist sees him, um, and he begins his ministry. And we don't, we don't sit and ponder too much about that time in between. But there's so much to that time in between it raises a lot of questions. I mean, like, God came to be a human. What was that possibly like? It brings up a bunch of questions like, what was Jesus like as a toddler? Did he throw tantrums, or was he just, like, poised all the time? What, what was Jesus' relationship with his friends? Did he have friends his age, or, I don't know, what would that be like? What was his family dynamic? How did Joseph and Mary parent him? What was it like when Jesus hit puberty? Did his voice crack or did he always have the voice of an angel? Was he athletic or did he stay inside reading the Torah all day? We don't know the answers to these questions and really they're, they're a little childish. But they do bring up one really good question. What was Jesus doing from the time of his birth to the time of his baptism? What was he doing before he began his ministry? My curiosity was inflamed when I was reading an article this past week, and it was titled, Jesus' Lost Years. And the article was about the time, between that time, between Jesus seen at the temple and Jesus at 30 years old. What was he doing in those 17 or 18 years of his life? And the article gave a few theories, and a few of them made sense. Uh, Jesus became a carpenter like his, his uh, earthly father, and that makes sense. 
Um, others were uh, Jesus uh, sat under the rabbis, and he learned from them, and he himself became a rabbi to prepare for his ministry. And that makes sense. And then they got, I mean, the theories became stranger and stranger to the point where it's talking about, you know, Jesus went to India to learn Buddhism, and then he returned to the Middle East um, to share what he learned, um, or that he went to Great Britain to learn magic and rituals from the Druids. And at that point, I just, I, you know, closed off the article because I was like, eh, you're all being weird now. But what was he doing? It's a mystery, but there are things in Scripture that can allude um, to talking about what he was doing during this time. And I would like to suggest that this was not Jesus' lost years, his time between his birth and his baptism, but these were Jesus' years of preparation. Jesus was preparing to become our Savior. And so let's talk about what he was doing. So as we end the Christmas season, where we celebrate Christ as a baby, and before we jump into our series in the book of Hebrews, we jump back into it, where we talk about him as our high priest and mediator, I want us to meditate. I want us to um, become introspective on what was happening in between those times. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Isaiah 53.11. Isaiah 53, 11. If you have a phone, you can look it up. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 11. The passage says this. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities, their iniquities. Now, Isaiah 53, this entire passage is describing the Messiah, describing the work of the Messiah, the Christ who will come. And much of it is spent talking about his suffering and the pain and the sorrow that he will experience on behalf of his people. Not only on behalf of his people, but also from his own people. Despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. And then it talks about that he will die for the iniquities of his people. And we're used to talking about that. that Jesus died for your sins. That is what salvation is. But catch this. Jesus is doing much more than just dying for our sins. Look with me here. Go go back to this passage. It says this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This righteous one, this perfect one, this servant before God Almighty will take that righteousness and account it to his people. Now, this is important. Yes, Jesus is going to come and die for our sins, but the righteousness that he gives is also crucial. Theologians distinguish the two, um, and they distinguish it as this, the passive obedience or the passive righteousness of Christ and the active righteousness of Christ. The passive righteousness of Christ, the receiving, is that Christ will die for us. He will take on the punishment and the wrath that is truly ours. 
And we know this. We talk about this. But we also need to be careful to make sure we talk about his act of righteousness. Christ not only died for your sins, but he lived a perfect life for you too. He lived a perfect life so he could credit that to you. And it's crucial for us to to experience and to know both of those things. We receive both at salvation. Let me give an example of why this is important. Let's just say, um, Tully Williams, I'm going to use him as an example. Let's just say that I give Tully my wallet. I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Let's say I give Tully my wallet, and I have to go run an errand. And I'm like, Tully, just watch over my wallet. Make sure no one steals it. All right? Let's say while I'm gone, Tully reaches in, he takes $20 out of my wallet, and takes it from me. Now, this is hypothetical. Tully wouldn't steal $20 from me, and I don't have $20 to steal. So, (laughs) but let's say he did. He takes it, and let's say I come back, and I find out, and I call him out on I'm like, Tully, you stole $20 from me. And out of his guilt, he pays me back. See, Tully has transgressed against me, and now he is in debt to me, and he pays that back. You see, but we're not good, right? Yes, he's paid me back, but he's also done something deeper. He has broken the relationship. Again, this is hypothetical. We're good friends. But he's broken that relationship. And that's what happens to us when we sin. See, when Adam fell in the garden, and when we sin, we not only are indebted to Christ, which... The scriptures say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews, it tells us that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Not only do we owe him our life, but we now have a broken relationship with the Father. And simply Christ dying for our sins is not enough because at best, just like my relationship with Tully, when I see him after he stole that $20 from me, At worst, I hate him. At best, I'm indifferent. But either way, I don't want to see his face. And it's the same thing with Christ. If Christ only died for our sins, but he didn't live a perfect life and credit it to us, at best, at very best, we're neutral, we're indifferent, and we have to earn that good favor. But the great thing about this, the thing that we rejoice in, the thing that we worship Christ in is that he came not just to die a perfect death for you, but to live a perfect life for you also. So what does this have to do with our topic of that period in between his birth and his baptism? Well, it has everything to do with this topic. Because from the beginning, from the moment of his conception, he was obtaining a righteousness for you. That is our first point here. Christ is obtaining a righteousness for us. What does this mean? To put it simply, Jesus Christ was born, and he was born perfect without sin, so that we who were born in sin could be made perfect. Jesus Christ grew into a toddler and a young adult in perfect obedience to his parents, to his elders, and to God, so that we who were disobedient to our parents and our elders and our God might receive his obedience. 
Jesus Christ lived under the law and perfectly obeyed the law and had a perfect relationship with the Father as an adult so that we who are adults might also receive that favor from God and a reconciled relationship with the Father. You see, from the beginning, he was obtaining So these were not lost years where Jesus was twiddling his thumbs, waiting until he was old enough to die for our sins. But every single day, he was obtaining a righteousness that he was going to impute on you. He was going to give you. He was going to map over your failed life with his successful and perfect life. And this means that everything that Christ did, his birth is now your birth. His baptism, his baptism, when God proclaimed over his son, You remember this when he was in the Jordan. He proclaimed over his son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When we receive our baptism, God proclaims the same thing over us. It is credited to us. And also his death and his resurrection that one day we will share in. And his ascension and his glorification, which one day we will share in. He credits all of that to us. He did so much more than just die for us. He lived for us. So what does this mean for you and I? If this is the first time you're hearing this, you don't consider yourself a Christian, I invite you to participate in this. I invite you to believe upon the Lord and receive not only his death to pay for your sins, but also his perfect life so that you might have a reconciled relationship with the Father. And for those of us who are Christ followers, who proclaim Jesus as our King and Savior, I invite you to rejoice. I invite you to rejoice in just how good our God is. Growing up, I used to think that Christ reluctantly saved me. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit held out their hand of salvation, and I just happened to grab hold of it. And they would roll their eyes and drag me into heaven Because I was just this this filthy sinner. When God looked at me and considered the relationship between him and I, he would roll his eyes and went, well, he said the prayer, so he got the deal. But no, Christ came so that the same love that the Father has for the Son, the same favor that the Father has for the Son might be mine, might be yours also. And so I invite you guys to rejoice in that, to remember that, to ponder on those things. Second is this, what was Christ doing during those preparation years and when he was preparing to become our Savior? Number two, he was becoming our perfect example of humility. He was becoming our perfect example of humility. Now, Christ is our example in many ways. And we can look at his life, we can look at what Scripture says, and we can see his example. But I want to pinpoint, I want to observe just his humility for a second. Christ, in his incarnation and who he was, became our perfect example of humility. Uh, Luke 2 gives this really fascinating story of Jesus as a boy at the temple. And I'll paraphrase the story for us, and it, it goes like this. Jesus, with his parents, came to celebrate one of the festivals um, in Jerusalem. So they went to the temple. They you know, had sacrifices, the festival. It was all good. And his parents left. And what they didn't know is that Jesus somehow snuck off. And after three days of searching for their son, because they literally lost the Savior, 
after searching and searching and searching for three days, they find him in the temple. And what do they find him doing? He's sitting at the feet of the religious leaders of the day, and it says that he's learning. He's learning, and he's asking questions. And they were amazed at his answers. They were amazed at what he was able to understand, but he was learning. His parents came up to him and said, like, all right, we got to go. And he's like, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And then it says, in obedience to his parents, he got up and he went with them. Jesus wasn't in the right there. He was, he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And yet he submitted to his parents. And they got up and it says that he grew in wisdom and stature. And it says that he uh, grew in favor with man and with God. This is such an odd story. I mean, it, truly, it is an odd story. Because Luke 1 and half of Luke 2 is describing that God himself, the God of the universe, is now here. He's come. He's a, he's a baby boy. Go see him. He is God. And then Luke 2, he's reminding his readers, by the way, he is also truly human. He is truly human. What we are learning here, what Christ is displaying for us, is the most extraordinary form of humility. He is becoming from God to a baby boy. And I just want, I want us to, to ponder on this, right? Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be a thing that is grasped. But being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to think about this. The Son of God has become a child. And I want you to ponder on what that, what that means. The very God who spoke everything into existence came to babble as an infant. The all-knowing God of the universe came and took on the mind of a child to learn from his creation, from flawed humanity. The all-sustaining God, the very source of life, came to nurse on his mother and to depend on his mother and father for food. The Lord God became a teenager. He went through puberty and he experienced all the temptations and all the frustrations that come with being a teenager. The indestructible God of the universe came to receive scrapes and bumps and blisters and splinters and even the common cold. And the God who holds all creation in his hand came to be held in the hands of a peasant woman and man, Joseph and Mary. God himself is performing the ultimate form, the ultimate example, the ultimate display of humility by becoming a child so that we might understand what true humility is. 
It should be no surprise to us that 30 years later when Jesus began his ministry, he tells us that if we are to enter the kingdom of God, we too must stoop low, be born again, and become like a child. We too must experience that sort of humility. Doug Wilson, a pastor and theologian, wrote a book called God Rest Ye Mary. And it's a book that ponders on um, some of the themes of the Incarnation. And he says this about this. We are told to clothe ourselves with uh, humility and tender mercies. When Jesus told the disciples to follow him, he certainly had the cross in mind. We are to take up the cross and follow him. But we're not just to follow him to the cross. We are also called to follow him to the manger. We must be born again. We must become a little child because we are much too adult. We are too full of ourselves and we are too self-important. The new birth is a birth of of humility. What do we have right after a birth, especially the new birth? A baby. Which is exactly what we are invited to become, a little child. Christ then becomes our perfect example of humility in his incarnation and by the way that he led himself to death on the cross. And we're called to follow that example. Now, this kind of humility can come in many different ways. There's a million ways that we need to be applying this to our life. And so I want to give you four prompts, just questions to think about, ways to challenge yourself. Number one, in what way can I deny myself, put aside my wants so that I can serve the needs of others? In what ways can I put aside my wants to serve the needs of others? Number two, what things, rewards, or recognition can I forego so that I can point to Christ's work instead of my own? Number three, is there any, anyone that I can learn to submit myself to even though I believe I'm right? In what ways, number four, what are some of the ways that Christ displays humility that I can also show in my own life? These are the things that Christ was doing from his time at birth up into his baptism. And even through that, he was still our example. Now we come to number three, the third thing, the third way that Christ was preparing himself to be the savior of mankind during these preparation years. Number three, Christ was becoming a sympathizing mediator. Our last verse for today is Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. If you remember, we're going through a series on Hebrews. Before we entered the Christmas season, we were going through um, the book of Hebrews. And we're going to jump back in, but I want us to back up and remember a passage. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in in our time of need. Like I was saying earlier, Christ came and he lived a normal human life. And he took on all the sorrow and the pains and temptations and trials and errors that we do also. He didn't just come to to float an inch above the earth and be untouched by anything and be unbothered by anybody and to be unannoyed by little things and not to stub his toe and not to experience sorrow and not to experience all of the things that we do. But he came to live a normal life. In fact, I would argue that maybe his life was much more sorrowful, much more painful, much more agonizing than ours. And he did it for a cause. He did it for a reason. Here are some of the things that we could um, um, allude to, some of the things that the Bible alludes to um, about Christ's life. Number one, Christ's birth was quite scandalous. If you remember, most people would have seen uh, Mary's pregnancy as scandalous. A child born out of wedlock. Even Joseph almost divorced her for it. And so when Jesus was born and when he's walking around and he's living in Israel, in Nazareth, can you imagine the glares that he would receive? Here's that Jesus born out of wedlock to his mother. Could you imagine Jesus growing up, recognizing this, recognizing that they don't understand the righteousness of God, recognizing they don't understand who he really is, being completely misunderstood, and watching as his mother and father, who have been nothing but obedient and faithful, be disregarded and disrespected by the culture around them? Could you imagine how hard, how heavy that would have weighed on his heart? We know that Jesus' family was quite poor. When they offered sacrifices in the temple in Luke 2, they gave two pigeons, which is the sacrifice for those who are poor. Jesus grew up in poverty. He didn't have much. We also know that somewhere in between seeing Mary and Joseph at the temple when he was a boy to Jesus coming on the scene at the marriage in Cana, somewhere along the way, Joseph disappears. Scholars think that Joseph either got up, packed up, and left, couldn't handle it anymore, or more likely, and I would think this, more likely, at a young age, Joseph died, leaving Mary to be a single mother of her family and Jesus to be the breadwinner of his. And this isn't counting Lazarus, his friend's death. This isn't counting the heartache that he experienced. This isn't counting watching as humanity tears itself apart while he's waiting to become their savior. This isn't counting the times that he was despised, the times he was rejected. This isn't counting, as Isaiah 53 would say, that he is a man of anguish, a man of sorrow, that men would turn away their face in disappointment that he would be rejected by his own people. This doesn't count any of that. Jesus came to experience all of this anguish, all of this pain, 
And why? Why would the God of the universe stoop so low just for his creation to mock him, spit in his face, and crucify him? Why would a God stoop so low to do that? He did it so that he might become a sympathizing mediator. One that is capable of understanding sorrow and pain while he intercedes for us to the Father. I want you to understand just how crucial this is. Because if our Christ, if our Jesus Christ, our Savior, is not sympathizing, and he didn't experience our sorrow and our infirmities and our issues, then all he is is a distant, calculating accountant who couldn't possibly understand that when we cry out to him, he couldn't shed a tear for us. When we cry out for him, he just, as a monotone person, would cry out to the Father, yeah, you know, Nick needs help in this. You have no idea. But instead, we do have a mediator who has experienced all of our temptations and all of our trials. And so we can do as the passage tells us, to boldly go before the throne, knowing that Christ, our mediator, has every capability to mediate for us and to know what it is to be human. And the wonderful thing about this, guys, I want you to understand this, the wonderful thing about Christ is that he doesn't just give a teaspoon of grace to soothe our teaspoon of pain and to make our terrible lives on this earth filled with sin and pain just a little bit brighter. That's not Christ. No, no, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 uses the word lavishes. That word is a word of of excess. He's going overboard with this sort of grace. He lavishes his grace upon us. So that when we have sin, he drowns it in a sea of mercy. When we have doubts, he buries it in a mountain of promises. And when we have doubt, when we have pain and we have sorrow and we're hungry and we need life, we need substance, he gives us a feast, not just a morsel of bread. He's the bread of life. On top of that, if that isn't good enough for you, on top of that, Romans 8 tells us that the spirit of Christ that is within us, when he intercedes for us, it says that he groans with words that are not fathomable. That he groans with words that we couldn't even possibly understand. What does this mean? It means there is no pain too deep, no sorrow too troublesome. There is no trauma too excruciating that our Christ cannot understand, that our Christ cannot mediate for. So that when we go to the Father, Christ knows. Christ understands. Christ has felt that. And Christ even will shed tears for you. Therefore, we are able to stand before him. And so I challenge you, go before the throne. Right? We, we, we're covered in his righteousness. 
We have a reconciled relationship with the Father, and we can go before him, and he welcomes us before him. He rejoices to see his children. And though he is our perfect example of humility, when we fail, guess what? We can go before him because he understands. And he understands. And he's there, and he's faithful to lavish us with God's grace and his goodness. In conclusion, we can know from the text that we have studied today that Christ did not come as an infant only to twiddle his fingers until he was old enough to die for our sins. But from the beginning, he was obtaining a righteousness for us. From his birth to his baptism to his death to his resurrection to his glorification, all of it is for us. These were not the lost years of Jesus where he was wandering as this mysterious figure, but these were the preparation years of Jesus as he prepared to become our Savior and our meteor, which we'll talk about next week and the the following weeks also. These were the years where he prepared himself to die on a cross and draw all men to himself. During this time, Christ obtained a righteousness for us, He became our perfect example of humility and he became our perfect sympathizing mediator so that we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Therefore, Christians, this week and the rest of your life, when Satan comes around, the accuser comes around and points his finger at your sin, just know that it is Jesus Christ who declares to us And to the Father, I will cover them with my righteousness. And I will teach them a new way of living according to my example. And when they stumble, and when they fail in their sin, I will intercede for them. Because I know and I have experienced their temptation and their sorrow. So for the sake of the Father's love for me, I will justify them, I will sanctify them, and I will advocate for them. And this is what we celebrate today at the Lord's table. We celebrate Christ's death, and we celebrate Christ's life. So thank you for for observing with me this preparation period. And I hope I've given you guys some things to think about. Ponder on the teenage years of Christ and how Maybe he can help you through your teenage years of life. 